0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Hensley-McBain. Today's episode features content from an educational program titled Cases and Controversies in HIV, A Global Perspective. This podcast features a patient case discussion with Dr. Jose Arribas from Hospital La Paz Idipaz in Madrid, Spain, Dr. Andrew Carr from the University of New South Wales and St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia, and Dr. Lenora Saxinger from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. For more information on Dr. Rivas, Dr. Carr, and Dr. Saxinger, and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides specific to today's discussion, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear our expert faculty discuss simplification strategies for a virologically suppressed patient with a complex ART treatment history.
1: Okay, let's move on to the last case. This is about simplification strategies. And this is a 32-year-old black woman with perinatal acquired HIV infection. So these are, in general, always very difficult cases. They've been all literally all their life taking medications. So recently relocated and it's the first visit to your office. Um, and she's uh, requesting a regimen with as few pills as possible. Her CD4 cell count is 326, her viral load is 45 copies per ml, had a history of cervical dysplasia years ago with serial cervical Paps with normal cytology, negative for high risk HPV, and you can see in the right. The long history of antiretroviral treatment started with, uh, um, you don't have access to all the records, but you know that he started on ACT, uh, then switched to um, Avacavir 3TC cytodine, then switched in 2003 to a boosted regimen of ACT 3TC lopinavir ritonavir. Then, going from a high-genetic barrier combination to a low-genetic barrier combination, Favirin's FTC-TDF, then an of not taking any antiretroviral, and then, um, at the same time, the, uh, with a pregnancy, was started on TDF, FTC, Atazanavir, Ritonavir. That was 2014, and since 2018, the present is taking two pills a Coformulation of Darunavir with Covicistat uh, along with FTC and TDF. So it's taking two pills, she wants to take uh, just one pill. So, in these patients that you don't have access to all the records, that's something that happens commonly, and you don't, and who have been through many antiretroviral regimens and you want to have really a sense of what patients might be archived, what is your opinion about proviral DNA genotype? Can you do it? Will you order a proviral DNA genotype in these patients? And when do you incorporate proviral DNA genotyping into your practice? So who are you, who, who of you does the proviral DNA genotyping?
2: So. The likelihood is that uh, a lot of the regimens were changed for intolerance, but it would be really important to go through each of the pills with with her now she probably doesn't remember the names, but if you show them the chart with the pictures of the tablets, they can usually say, "Aha, uh-huh, I took that one and that one that one made me sick that one you know gave me headaches." Uh, and yeah, I didn't always take that one, right? So that's a very useful discussion. Um, and from the types of combination she was on, you know, it was boosted uh with uh, zidovudine. Quite likely, she didn't take it all, but fairly likely, she probably didn't get any resistance from it. Um, so hopefully, there's not. A, there might be some thymidine resistance there, but not much more.
3: You know, I, I looked at her history and I was thinking that she went through a teen phase and my experience with the teens um, are that they they commonly actually are they have an uncontrolled viral load it's usually because they haven't taken any of it and then you have that obvious break in the treatment so I mean, ordinarily, even if we don't have genotypes along the way, we'll usually be able to piece together a drug history and a series of viral loads that will give us an idea of the risk of whether she actually had, you know, non suppressive therapy for, you know, durations of time that were of concern. Usually when they're followed by a pediatrician, they get seen every five minutes and there's no problems and then everything goes bad after that. So in this case, it would be one where I think that would be a useful thing to do in the absence of having those records. Um, similarly, I'm pretty sure I'd have to grovel to someone to get it done, and it's not been part of my practice to date. Um, usually we go through the old, you know, kind of detective work of drug history, refill history, viral load history, find some old viral loads and send them off for a GART. And um, that usually actually serves pretty well. So I think there's attraction to this, but it's not been part of my practice to date.
1: Okay, There is a lot of geographical variation in the States. Monogram does the test. and. Uh, and in, for example, in Europe, in France, they do it a lot. Uh, but guidelines always recommend to take the, the results with a lot of precautions because they can, you know, they lack sensitivity many times uh, because the sampling issue is not the same that doing RNA in plasma. The, the RNA is distributed uh, with plasma. You actually have to sample the cells that are infected and also some of the mutations that you detect might not be relevant because we know that a lot of the reservoir is, just yes, virus that is not fully replication competent. So if the mutation is there, might help, you know, but this is not, uh, these results are not easy to interpret so uh, it's not a difficult test to do but um, they do it in house it, it's hospital you have a virologist that this is interested in provider dna you can do it it's not that difficult but the results are we have to say are difficult to interpret so you go through this detective work that inora was saying um, so the, the patient reports consistent art adherence since the birth of her son f- five years ago and you track down a historical genotype 15 years ago. So you do archaeology of, of <laughs> and that have the M184b. Uh, but you perform a provider DNA genotype, which they know, no predicted resistance. That happens sometimes, the provider DNA genotype. If you don't do, I forgot to mention, you can do just yes population sequencing with Sanger, or you can do ultra-deep sequencing. And sometimes, if you do Sanger, you don't uh, pick that mutation that was um, in the record in the past. As she works as a teacher, said, lives with her sister and her son, good family and social support, all aware of her HIV status, never smoke, occasion, occasional alcohol use, no previous or current indecent drug use. So, you see, there are her labs that you know has a hemoglobin of 12 platelets 200 and it's also um, those are your normal labs uh, he's immune importantly to hepatitis a b um is an antibody negative for hepatitis c virus uh his hla b5701 is negative so uh, which regimen would you recommend for this patient who wants to simplify? So, uh, here is going, if, if he wants to simplify, can go from two pills uh, or to one pill. If we are talking about now, we are talking about oral regimens. We will talk about other type of regimens later on. And remember, since taking a uh, high genetic value regimen with Daruna Virgovicista plus FTC TDF, and there you have three, five, uh, six regiments to pick from, or something else, who wants to? <laughs> yeah. um,
2: before I switched, uh, if uh, she's taking uh 3TC, FTC, I can't remember, and boosted She's got a viral load of 45 copies, right? So, right. even if with a 184V, she should be suppressed. So, either she's got additional mutations or she's not taking the medicine correctly. Good and one. in my experience, there are two reasons for that because she's just serially non adherent, she doesn't take all the pills, or she, takes, she doesn't take Darunavir with food. Um, and I've just, I just, over and over again, I've had that experience with patients, even to the point where a patient said, yes, I always take it with food. What time do you uh, have lunch? One o'clock. What time do you take the pills? Three o'clock. Okay. Yeah. So, And then we it took about a year to get to that point. So if she really is taking it with food and she really is taking it every day, then I would be inclined to... Uh, either change the durunavir or add to her current regimen. I see no reason if she's going to stay where she is, where she might not take option three, which is, uh, you know, same medicines, uh, one pill, boost um, a with FTAF in a single pill, right? So that's the sim- most similar to what she's taking. But... I suppose I'd like to see a couple of viral loads with her really taking her pills correctly before I did the switch.
1: Okay, that's a great point. It's just 45. We used to call that undetectable when we had the 50 cut off, but now it's 45. And it's true that with boosted PIs in general you see a little bit more, at least in my experience, but I think your points were very well taken, and you taking it with food is very important, and also review his prescriptions and see if he's taking all the medications by, you know, by pharmacy records. What will be your option in your
3: You know, it's interesting. I was listening to that, and I was, you know, interested by the the blip. I mean, you know, the low-level detectable viral load, what does that mean in this one in value for this patient and it it makes me nervous it makes me less happy than if it was fully suppressed but i mean seriously in the bad old days when we had a 400 cutoff, we wouldn't have known about it and everyone did fine as far as i recall of course i was just a baby then and um <laughs> but um but you know i'm not sure if that would sway me that much i would like to know if this has been a frequent issue for her because if she is basically almost uniformly undetectable, I don't know if I would change my plan right now based on, on a 45 um, times one. And you know, she has an M184B, which is not unexpected given her history. Um, the multiple regimens make me a little bit nervous, but she's never had, as I recall, an integrase inhibitor, which I think should be able to do a lot of heavy lifting for her. And so I think I actually would be comfortable giving her an integrase-based regimen, but I would probably be kind of keen to do, um, you know, some real serious heart-to-heart adherence discussions and a fairly um, timely viral load follow-up after making a switch. And in practical fact, I probably would go with a Bictegravir-based regimen. Um, But again, I think that, you know, because this is a case and we don't have all the information, if there was any suspicion of, Frequent detectable viral loads or adherence problems. I think that would be a red flag, and um, that might delay my uh, uh, enthusiasm for that particular tactic.
1: Yeah, my only other comment. I agree with uh, everything you've said. My other comment is I tend to, you know, switch away from boosters, especially in young people or, worse, or young people and elderly people. You know, um, I, if I cannot give a booster, there is always other doctors that see these patients that do not know, not know about interactions and for me it's in general if i cannot use a booster for me is something important uh there here are uh, several nnrti based regimens such as the the rubberine and the lutheran let's not forget that this lady had been on a for a long time and might have some NNRTI resistance mutations that are have not been detected by the provider dna um so uh but there was uh last options that that uh, was something else uh, i think lenora you're in canada you have approved long acting regimens and um, i don't know in australia andrew you have long acting already approved.
2: not yet not yet so,
1: what what will be your ideas, your opinions about long acting injectable art as a simplified history once approved? Um, what barriers do you foresee to implementing in your clinic long acting injectable art?
3: So we're we're not at the uh, approved in use phase yet, and we're kind of keen on this. I, I think that this is kind of a niche um, um, product for the patients that we see. And to some extent, it, it, there, there are patients, I think, who think, at least in theory, this will be fantastic. I'm not sure if they're going to find it fantastic for the long haul, um, because, you know, uh, the frequency of appointments sounds not bad until you start making them. So, so to us, when we look at this, we look at our uh, patients who might be um, maybe needing more support, maybe in a slightly more chaotic environment where the structure actually provides some benefit. Um, and if they're closely affiliated with the clinic, where they're often going for other supports, like seeing the social worker or other things, I think that's an excellent setting for this. Um, there are patients who really struggle with taking pills every day and might be amenable to giving this a try. Um, and and uh, like the, it, it's it's kind of idiosyncratic. Um, when I have looked at the literature of long acting injectable other things, um, it's very it's very much I think. Um, patient need and patient desire specific and and I suspect this will be the same so I'm sure that we'll be offering it to some patients for whom we think it would be a good choice and then they're going to have to decide if it's a good choice for them and we probably would be planning to administer it at our, at our clinic presently and then maybe seeing if we can devolve that to, uh, to other clinics um, closer to the patient if that becomes a barrier. So I, I'm I'm fascinated to see how this is going to roll out. And um, the other thing I would comment, though, is in in a patient like this, like that is a simplification step. But if people are considering trying to conceive, um, I think that's a big question mark. Really want to make sure that patients who are contemplating this were on probably have an IUD. Um, as contraception until we know more about what this would look like for uh, pregnancy.
2: Now I got a lot of questions. Um, Patients tend to get a little disheartened when I explain to them what you said, that actually you're going to need to come to clinic more often, not less often. You can't inject yourself and you can't do it at home. Um, And so for people who are working, it's a, you know, it's it's a disincentive at the way it's currently um, structured. Hopefully, we can develop sort of more community-focused models of dispensing, so it becomes a lot easier for patients, and then I think the uptake will be a lot better.
1: Good. So my only other comment is that in general, the the main driver for patients to want this is uh, may I mean. My conversations with them have been a stigma and issues of disclosure. And this lady apparently doesn't have that problem and lives in a very supportive environment and everybody's aware of her HIV status. But also, I like your comment, Linora, that uh, if uh, women that can, might become pregnant, they should know that this stays there for a while, even if they stop. It, it's can, uh, cavalier, we can stay there for one year. So it's it's very important to have that in the conversation.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Aribas, Dr. Carr, and Dr. Saxinger, And thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full educational program, Cases and Controversies in HIV, A Global Perspective, on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks.